Hello, I'm Robert Riley, the director of the Westminster Institute, and I'd like to welcome you to the continuation of our lecture series, now done under these special conditions due to the circumstances of the day. Soon I will host our founder and chairman, Dr. Patrick Sukeo, who resides in England. Our speaker now is a friend and former colleague, Dr. David Wormser. He is a senior analyst at the Center for Security Policy here in Washington. He has over 35 years of experience in foreign policy with the State Department, the Department of Defense, the National Security Council at the White House, and the American Enterprise Institute. David is a well-known expert on the Middle East and has his PhD from Johns Hopkins on Middle East and foreign policy issues, excuse me, <clears throat> from December 2008 until September 2019, Dr. Wormser served as senior advisor to the U.S. National Security Advisor, John Bolton. Uh, recently, David has written a series of influential memoranda for the White House on how to deal with Iran and the Quds Force, and most particularly with its former head, uh, Qasem Soleimani, who has since then been effectively dealt with. Dr. Wormser served as the Middle East advisor to former Vice President Dick Cheney from 2003 to 2007. He's also served as a special assistant to John Bolton when he was Under Secretary of State for Arms Control. And he's been a research fellow on Middle East at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, David's consulted for the Office of the Secretary of Defense on war-related classified project on understanding the nature and strategic significance of terrorist group networks and their interactions with states. It was at the Defense Department that I had the pleasure and uh, privilege of being his colleague for some time. David is also a reserve officer in the Navy, uh, where he is an intelligence officer with the rank of lieutenant commander. He's been mobilized several times, served with distinction, and has received uh, some of the highest uh, awards. At this lecture, he is going to draw upon his tremendous cultural literacy and depth of understanding on the topic of the reemergence of civilizations, including Russia's, as the defining factor in the future of the Middle East. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Bob. I really appreciate the introduction, and it's a great honor to be here at the Westminster Institute and to, to be able to give a talk. Um, so today, I'm going to talk a little bit about the return of civilizations in the Middle East, and I'm going to use the way Russia looks at it sort of as a window into how to do that. So about a century ago, or actually more now, uh, George Eliot once wrote in Silas Marner, the sense of security more frequently springs from habit rather than conviction. And for this reason, it often subsists after such a change in the conditions as might have been expected to suggest alarm. The lapse of time during which a given event has not happened in this logic of habit 
constantly alleged as a reason why the event should never ever happen, even when the lapse of time is precisely the added condition which makes the event imminent. End quote. This is, I think, a great warning for the way one studies the Middle East. What is and what seems stable now, one shouldn't allow habit to determine how stable it will remain. Well, now, as we start a new decade, which we have a few months ago, despite the upheaval of the Arab Spring, the layout of the neighborhood does look eerily similar to the way it has for the many of the decades before. Those who forecast the persistence of the reigning paradigm appear vindicated. Let's go over some of these. First, the savviness of the rulers of the Arab states, along with the predictability of their traditional opposition, which is namely the Muslim Brotherhood, survived as the foundation for understanding the region. This seems to be the case. Second, the outlier power, both geographically and religiously, namely Iran, remains the greatest challenge regionally. Third, the outlier revolt, namely ISIS or Al-Qaeda, while disturbingly resilient, failed in, the, in Arab lands to overthrow the ruling elites. None of the nearly two dozen Arab states, indeed any state which is predominantly Islamic, are currently controlled by ISIS or an Al-Qaeda government. Even Afghanistan is not. Indeed, neither ISIS nor Al-Qaeda even managed to seize the banner of the established opposition of most Arab nations, and thus they seem contained. Fourth, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict teeters at the sort of continental divide between eruption and resolution. So both habit and the test of time suggest that we can reasonably and safely retreat into projecting the past into the future to guide our interactions with the region. And yet the warning signs are present that very little of what it's been will continue to be. In an article making waves, Jonathan Alterman at the Brzezinski Center believes his studies reveal a rise of individualism in forming the current wave of demonstrations in the Fertile Crescent, uh, the capitals of the fer Fertile Crescent. Were such individualism to emerge, then it would indeed upturn the established order. Indeed, maybe those were right, who said the internet and globalism would change the region in a liberal direction. Now, such a rise in individualism would be startling. It contradicts the essence of the familial, social, political, economic, and religious life among Arab Muslims, the culture of which is an amalgam of tribal and communal structures of safety and protection and a theological sense of being on the historically right side of revelation, which is itself also an intangible structure of protection. Neither pillar serves as a firm foundation for individualism. In fact, both gravitate against it. So, a rise in individualism would mean a cultural, religious, and civilizational revolution. And it would warrant optimism in the liberal West that the Arab world is finally beginning to modernize. But cultures and civilizations do not easily change. In fact, the historical record shows that their persistence over eras and upheavals is stunning. Indeed, as Alexis de Tocqueville observed in his book, The Ancien Regime, that even after such a cataclysmic event as the French Revolution, underlying culture survived. Its structures and patterns just assumed new masters, but they were derived from the disillusioned backbenches of the old elites. 2,000 miles away and a century later, 
The same observation could have been made about the Middle East after the Ottoman collapse. Arab Ottoman elites, many of whom naturally even spoke Turkish rather than Arabic, who had become increasingly frustrated with the rise of Turkish nationalism, rose to take over the residue of the Ottoman imperial administration after the war and became the new elite. In many ways, not even new, but now just independent. At any rate, they became the new elite of the old but now fragmented structures. Students of Russian history also would probably make the same observations of the transition from Tsar through Kerensky to Lenin to Commissar. Simply put, cultures absent a millennially traumatic event or population shift do not change much. And even then, only slightly. What then are we to make of the rise of individualism, which Alterman appears to identify? I suspect that what Alterman detects is accurate, but the Russian leadership is way ahead of us in the United States in understanding what it is we're actually looking at. Thinkers and theologians like Alexander Dugin and Tikhon Shevkunov may or may not be close confidants of Vladimir Putin's, they are conflicting assertions, but they clearly are attuned to Putin's strategic mindset. Specifically, they view the course of history through the prism of the persistence of ancient culture and civilizations in shaping identities and geopolitics, including in the modern era. Through that prism, Russia envisions itself on the one hand as the true heirs of Byzantium, leaders of the Orthodox Church, indeed all of Christendom in all variations, which explains why the greatest historians of Byzantium were Russian led by the two greatest of them all, the Russian Alexander Vasilyev and the Russian-born George Ostrogorsky. How they view the Byzantine legacy is itself instructive. Some see Russia as the fusion of pre-Christian Mongolian and early even pre-schismatic Orthodox Christian European identity, which its intellectuals now call Eurasianism. Indeed, while Putin has focused on the post-Christian soul of Europe as evidence of its decline and fall, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and Putin himself at other times defined Russian foreign policy as more to its being a Eurasian bridge, which is both Mongolian and European. This Eurasian outlook divides the world into vertical axes, if you can imagine north-south axes with Russia being the northern anchor of the axis reaching into the Asian Middle East, while Western Europe more is the north of the axis spreading southward into Africa. It's a much more Western and then Central Asian axis. As part of this Eurasianism, Russia imagines itself as the savior of a perishing European civilization that has abandoned both its Christian and European civilizational foundations. Since the, Renaissance, since the Renaissance for a multicultural liberal ratatouille with a chaotic and drifting identity. Russia offers itself as the model, a pre-Christian Christianity and strong authoritarian leadership for Europe's return to sanity. Indeed, there's even a rebellion within the Russian church to establish a mythically pure version of the Orthodox Church, represented by Father Tikhon Shevchuk, against the, quote, corrupted, Europeanized cler church clergy influenced by Western ideas of liberalism since the Great Schism and Renaissance. <clears throat> it is an embrace 
which Father Tichon believes is responsible for orthodoxy's long decline. So if one is predisposed toward viewing true Russian civilization as the reassertion of culture and civilization of a millennium ago, then one can almost effortlessly slide into identifying trends in the Middle East, largely still invisible to Western eyes, or distorted by our unflinching confidence in the spread and eventual triumph of universal freedom. So specifically, we in the West continue to look at the Middle East as a collection of over 20 states, currently under stress, true, and rent by regional rivalries over ideologies such as Arab nationalism, Islamism, Sunni Shiite tensions, but still operating within the framework of the Sykes-Pico post-World War I partition. Moreover, we in the West still view Israel as the odd man out, Turkey as no longer a wholly Middle Eastern state, but a Europe Europeanizing work in progress. <clears throat> Warts and all, we still view this structure as a workable foundation of a slow march toward modernity and, quote, normal international politics, but not so in Russia. In contrast, Russia sees it as the unraveling of the modern at the hands of the ancient. Again, harking back to their view of themselves. True, Russia almost certainly continues to view ideological rivalries as relevant, but it also views them as being played out through deeper, more primordial structures. Being attuned to the resilience of power of culture and civilization to move history, Russia sees more clearly than we do the region, uh, Russia sees more clearly than we do the region, that the region is already entering the post-Sykes-Pico system. The Middle East state system in, is in collapse and emerging in its wake are several core civilizational entities around which the region will be defined going forward. The control of or alliance with either Russia or the West with those core civilizations will determine the course and fortunes of those ideological rivalries. So, turning back to this trend toward individualism, which is more accurately described as a revolt of the individuals against the abusive state in several of the Fertile Crescent capitals, is marked not by traditional rivalries, such as Shiites revolting against Sunni rule, or vice versa, but what we see are Shiite Lebanese, Shiite Iraqis, and Iranians revolting against Shiite rulers. And yet, at the moment, we do not see this spreading into Sunni capitals southward, into Amman, into Riyadh, Doha, Manama, or Dubai. This difference is worth contemplating. The explanation may well be that domination and the fertile crescent of Arab identity, which in the end remained ultimately nomadic and thus entirely social, is being rattled by the temptation which is driven by the rejection of the abysmal state of governance across the Arab world or Muslim world of nostalgic forms of identity, such as Persian, Venetian Crusader, Byzantine, attended by an untethered sense of social belonging and identity caused by failed governance, the populations of older civilizational remnants appear to be reasserting their attributes against the Arab essentially nomadic overlay, which is inherently more familial, tribal, or communal. Again, this is the cities of the Fertile Crescent. Southward, 
in contrast. Upheaval in societies at the heart of Arab culture, which are to the south of the Fertile Crescent, such as Amman, or among Sunni tribes across the Asian Middle East, appears to seek new structures of patronage to fulfill a distinctly non-individualist identity and reestablish stability and safety. Yes, there's a crisis of government, but it, it plays out differently. It is a retreat into looking for the framework of the comforting into the all-encompassing father-leader family sort of politics. Hence the attraction of the ISIS al-Qaeda model, as well as some sort of weird love-hate attraction to Israel and the West emerging, since they represent, quote, safety. They're not running away from tribe, father, or family, but seeking to replace it with another version of the same. In these nostalgic forms of opposition, inherently urban populations, again, now talking further north in the Fertile Crescent, such as those in the Fertile Crescent cities, assume a greater self-motivating, self-guiding, and self-realizing form, namely individualism. As such, what Alterman discerns may not be the first signs of entry into, Is into Islam of what the West would like to see as an enlightened modern modernism, but really the beginning of a nostalgic reassertion of the urban civilizations of the pre-Islamic Fertile Crescent with all the chaotic and often individualistic elements of urban culture against their Islamic overlay with its heavily nomadic overtones of community-based structures of protection. And these, indeed, these demonstrators in Beirut, in Nabatia, in Baghdad, in Najaf, in Tehran, in Mashhad, are employing the language of asserting rights. They are not seeking protection. That's not the language they're using. They accuse their rulers of having stolen from them, trampled on them, and violated them, namely the language of a sovereign citizen, i.e. member of a city, challenging his government. In contrast, demonstrations among counterparts in other parts of the Middle East appear to focus more on accusing rulers of having failed to provide security for their person, failed to protect their families, failed to deliver them proper welfare, or failed to act with sufficient noblesse and fairness to their communities, all forms of language appropriate for tribal members petitioning a chief. In essence, therefore, we are seeing two sorts of change. The urban fertile crescent is switching civilizational allegiance, but the tribes originating in the Arab Peninsula are switching tribal patrons. So what are those cultural civilizational centers which are emerging and which the Russians appear to have more adeptly identified than we? In the Asian Middle East, the east of Suez that is, there are primarily three urban civilizations, cultures, the Byzantine remnant, the Indo-Persian ancient, quote, Aryan civilizational block, and the Jews resurrected in Israel. We have additionally two nomadic imperial cultures and civilizations in the region. First, the Ottoman Mongolian revival, carrying the banner of Islam right now, and the Sunni Muslim tribal Arab culture. So to recap for a moment, we have considered how Russia is informed by a civilizational concept of foreign policy. It sees itself anchored to both an ancient Byzantine legacy as well as the Eurasian power, which is an amalgam of pre-Renaissance European culture with Mongolian culture, according to the works of its leading ideologues and theologians. 
And in turn, it projects onto the Middle East the strategic concept that there is a vertical geographic axis within which Russia as a Eurasian power is the northern and dominating anchor. Further south, the Middle East is increasingly defined by the resurgence of ancient cultures, civilizations, three of which are urban, Byzantine, Indo-Persian, and Jewish, and two originally nomadic, Ottoman and Arab. So let's turn first to Byzantium. If there is a remnant of the great Byzantine civilization beyond Russia itself, it is not in its cradle in Asia Minor, but in Greece and in the periphery of Asia Minor, namely the Christian communities of the Balkans and of the Middle East. Russia tends to focus as much on populations as on territory, an expansive evolution of the early concept after the Soviet collapse of the near abroad. The more Russia sees itself as the heir of Byzantium, the more it sees itself as the patron or protector of Byzantine's remnant populations, namely Greek, Balkan, and Middle East Christians, which it sees not as tired stragglers clinging to life, but the core civilization of the Western Levantine Fertile Crescent, and more importantly, an extension of itself. Because Russia seems to have more of a population-oriented rather than territorially-based concept of its Byzantine inheritance, at least thus far, it appears not to view the land of Israel as Byzantine trust territory quite yet, and thus has limited territorial's design on it so far. This, of course, can change. But that is not to say that Russia is not interested in the land of Israel's Christian inhabitants. Indeed it is, and substantially so. When Putin visited Israel last, at first he planned on dispensing with the habitual balancing visit to the Palestinian Arab PLO government in Ramallah. And instead, he went and met with church leaders in Bethlehem. In Israel, he sought discussions with Jews and displayed support for the Christian community. He reluctantly agreed in the end to go to the Mukata, the Ramallah compound, for a minimal half hour visit as a perfunctory afterthought, the optics of which only emphasized his utter disinterest. Even just last month, an Israeli girl had been arrested while transiting Moscow. In the prisoner exchange with Moscow that ended this standoff between Israel and, and, and Russia, Moscow insisted on regaining its old Russian rights to a key church in Jerusalem. So important was it to, to Moscow. Moving further east, Iran, Persia. The West continues to see Iran as a non-Arab Muslim nation. This Muslim component, while undeniably part of its story, has been vastly inflated by the Iranian regime itself in order to advance its quest to invent and lead a new version of pan-Islamic rather than Sunni Nasserism. While in the West, we have in recent decades appreciated the difference between Sunnis and Shiites. We don't know what to make of Iran's ancient history beyond filing it away as a quaint history lesson or a residue leaving ethnic tensions. We don't know what to make of Reza Pahlavi's grandfather who worked very hard to restore ancient Persian sites and awareness. Our understanding fails to grasp the unifying, civilizational, and powerfully nationalist emotive aspects of Persian nationalism. It views Iranian attitudes toward the West as a natural extension, thus, of the attitudes reigning in the rest of the Middle East. It's a Middle East country. And yet, if Russia views itself as the inheritor of Byzantium, Christendom, and ancient Hellenica, 
then the Iranian population increasingly sees itself as the inheritor of the legacy of Cyrus the Great and the Persian Empire, more than it now views itself as a regional Islamic power, not the government, the people. In other words, Iranians see themselves as distinct from the Middle East, or perhaps older and more genuine, pre-Islamic and European, than what we would understand as the Middle East. As a result, increasingly in Iran, the language of opposition, which has proven explosively dangerous for the regime, is assuming the menacing mantle, menacing for the regime, of a nostalgic return to its Persian roots. The works of Ferdowsi, well written, were written well over a thousand years ago, but now they're growing in importance as seditious texts. Pilgrimage to the tomb of Cyrus has become an act of subversion so much that the regime tries to bar visits, sometimes comically so, by putting up construction sites around. The seeds of this revival were sown before the rise of the Islamic Revolution in Iran, precisely because the royal Iranian government, this is the Shah's grandfather, attempted to restore ancient Persian history and encourage its domination within Iranian identity to dilute the influence of Islam and the power of its clergy. An effort, by the way, that the Israelis were somewhat involved with too, because they saw themselves as, as needing some prototype or so. So they, there were conversations uh, between the Shah and Israel on this, but that for another day. The effort by the Shah though failed largely last century. But interestingly, the popular rejection born of four decades of the horrors, the corruption, and the failure of the Iranian regime, the revolutionary Iranian regime, this now has led the opposition to embrace the very language of hope and aspiration through an ancient Persian form. So where the Shah failed, the Islamic revolution has succeeded in a negative way. Moreover, Iran belongs also to an ancient Indo-Persian civilizational grouping, an urban culture for millennia. It has had deep cultural and population ties to India and many populations in between. Nor are Indians neutral on Iran. Many Indians view Iran as cousins, as a relative in the ancient Indus Basin civilization. Moreover, India is a home to a robust Persian exile community still practicing Zoroastrianism. And many of these Persians now form India's business elite. I, for an example, I would, I would throw out Tata himself, the, the largest conglomerate, uh, business conglomerate in India. Tata is uh, of Persian origin and Zoroastrian. Simply stated, Iran is in the process of returning to its Indo-Persian foundations and role in the region or even the slightly more Eastern region, perhaps reinventing it in somewhat forced fashion, though by, by um, using the obscuring mist of nostalgia. Most important though, it is to note that Persian civilization is entirely urban in its character, while Islam at its heart is a reflection of the nomadic peninsular Arabs. Next great civilization that I would turn to to understand where the Middle East, the shape of the Middle East coming forward, going forward. Israel, the Jewish nation. Further south is Israel. In Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations, Huntington goes to great lengths to try to prove that the Jewish people are not its distinct civilization, ultimately arguing <clears throat> that the minuscule size of the community 
can neither muster civilizational critical mass nor really civilizational influence. And yet his efforts betray his own suspicions. As Shakespeare said in Hamlet, the lady doth protest too much. Israel is in fact reemerging now as one of the few core civilizations in the Middle East with its own ethnicity, religion, language group. In fact, it's the only remaining North Semitic language and culture in the Middle East. Moreover, it is again assuming its highly influential and strategic role in, shape, in helping shape the region, ironically, without intending to or being consciously aware of its role. Israel is often called the startup nation. We all see that as a major critical aspect of its culture. This term was popularized by the book of the same name by Sinor, Dan Sinor and Singer, which fails to credit the enduring influence of ancient civilization and limits Israeli innovation to being nothing more than being embedded uh, in, in, in Israel's current circumstances and it, that it is a fairly recent result of the unique circumstances and tribulations of the Jewish people's struggle in World War II and Israel's creation and demands of survival afterwards. In other words, they attribute so much of Israel's character to what's happened in the last 70 years, rather than dig deeper into the deeper sources of, of Jewish influence on Israeli society. Well, certainly also an attribute of several other civilizations, such innovation has indeed marked Jewish civilization from inception with the moment the quest to struggle with understanding the unknown abstraction guided Abraham's behavior. The intangibility of monotheism, the concept of the abstract deity, the presence of which one can intellectually accept, but which can neither be seen nor touched, was reinforced by a prohibition on its representation through icons and statues. Judaism and the nation that emerged from it was organized around this purely abstract concept. It was a nation organized around an abstraction. This cultural proclivity to abstraction was inherently accompanied by a restlessness, a struggle in conflictual relationship with the abstract power guiding the unknown. This restlessness at times seeks to understand and harness the abstract, and at times rebels against its vast incomprehensibility. Namely, no assumption is accepted as just so. The very name of the Jewish people, Israel, embodies this restlessness. Translated, it means, quote, wrestler with God, Israel the allegory of which was Jacob's actu actually wrestling with the divine and the change of his name and that of his descendants to Israel. So unique was this proclivity to struggle with the abstract that even the Greeks two and a half thousand years ago already took intense interest in that name and what it meant and chose to use it to refer to the people and land of Israel. The Greek word for wrestler, struggle, is palestis from which the name Palestine was coined by Greeks to refer to Jews by their own self-appellation already in 400 BC. By the way, this tells us that the common wisdom that the name Palestine came from the Romans renaming Israel with the name of its ancient nemesis, namely the Philistines, is actually erroneous since the name Palestis, Palestis in, Arab, in, in Greek, already appeared in Greek texts such as Herodotus four to five centuries earlier and to refer not only to the Jews but to the land of Israel. 
using the ex exact translation of the word Israel, Palestis, God. Such naming, by the way, was also consistent with Greek practices, since they generally used Greek translations, not transliterations of the name people gave themselves. So Phoenix, which is purple in ancient Greek, is a translation of the word in ancient Semitic of Canaan, Canaan, purple snail dye. And thus today we have Phoenicia, namely the purple nation. At any rate, not to diverge. This, this restlessness that I describe in Jewish culture, this constant state of struggle with the abstract, which is inherently both which inherently both entices one to seek comprehension, definition, and evidence of its existence, at the same time defies full discovery, limits and limits its uh, uh, understand our understanding of it, and blocks our access to it. This grounds the tendency to never settle into accepting what is just so in Jewish culture. So no assumption can survive that proclivity unscathed let alone untouched. Innovation is the upside of this otherwise non-palliative, culturally rooted restlessness, since it leads to a civilization, pro civilizational proclivity to fiddling with things and ideas. In a culture defined around the abstract, plunging into the unknown is the natural state. It is home. These foundations which drive Israel toward innovation, and again, they're deep and cultural, also enabled the Jewish people to preemptively, politically, and theologically adjust to survive, as they do, uh, as does do other cultures which are grounded on similar foundations. Israel is not entirely unique on that. Uh, the United States, for example, is not is is quite innovative, and it is remarkable uh, to watch over the last two hundred years the ability of the United States to survive uh, through its innovation. At any rate. This ingrained cultural proclivity to innovate helps explain why the, explain the unlikely survival, as British historian Paul Johnson termed it, of the Jewish people against the current and expectations of history. Understanding from where Israel's penchant for innovation comes from suggests that Israel's innovation will not only persist but thrive in an age of reduced threat. Indeed, the historical record suggests that Jewish people have played an innovative role within the economies of many nations in which they lived. Uh, and they reached their greatest heights in periods of greatest freedom and reduced sense of communal threat. So innovation may have been ingrained in Israeli culture since the beginning of the state, but type of innovation that Israel enjoys has changed in the last decades. I would actually argue that the stress, privation, and danger of constant threat, either in diaspora and in Israel's first decades, more likely retarded or even distorted than nurtured the full potential of the Jewish people toward innovation. It forced its innovative nature to largely limit itself to leveraging existing or known technologies and applying them in novel ways. First, Israeli innovation tended to be adaptive, not pioneering. It provided tactical solutions with paradigms to problems, within paradigms to problems, rather than challenging the paradigms themselves. This engendered several episodes of respected and exported Israeli know-how, especially in defense, but the volume of pioneering versus adaptive innovation were fewer and rarer and failed to sufficiently amount to a reputation of Israel's punching above its weight. Moreover, 
since a large percentage of innovation was adaptive, the global application of Israeli innovativeness was limited to global needs, which coincided with Israeli needs. As horrific as an event as it might have been in its first 50 years, Israel's disappearance would then have not registered much of an impact on the global economy. And thus its economy never registered as a vital Western interest, nor was its civilizational influence considered very great. What marks Israeli innovation now in the current era going forward and explains the rise of Israel as an economy that punches above its weight is that it now has transcended both adaptive creativity and limited local applicability. Israel has emerged at the forefront of pioneering innovation and an inversion of its past circumstance it is geared toward answering global innovative demand, even if it is not applicable to the Israeli market. Israel is now a research innovator and an incubator on an international level, servicing major global industries rather than its own economy. <clears throat> as such, Israel's economy has now emerged this is, as a significant Western interest in its own right. And as such, millennia-old Jewish civilizational attributes and the state of Israel are finally aligned again. China and Russia see this as culturally rooted, not circumstantial as most in the West do. And thus, China and Russia appreciate it as much more of a resilient and permanent strategic condition that defines Israel's role in the region than many in the West, which cannot fathom this cultural proclivity. <clears throat> Now, if Israel's becoming so powerful um, in terms of influence and economic vitality, what role does it play? We know in Persia, Byzantium, they were empires. So what, what does culture tell us about Israel's role? Well, the truth is the Jews, even in ancient times, tended to be introverted and sucked into great power conflicts rather than volunteer to engage in them. While the Davidic Empire, the House of David, had its moments, neither have the Jewish people displayed any genuine imperial ambition, nor has Judaism sought universality as a religion. Still, although generally clueless about its impact, Israel is unwittingly emerging as a competition for Russians' vision, Russia seeing itself as the Eurasian power uh, in the northern part of that axis in the, in, the, in the Middle East. Well, Israel is neither solely European, nor Asian, nor African. Culturally, Israel is also a Eurasian amalgam with a long history of interactions with both Europe and Persia. But its pedigree is Semitic, with strong Persian and Hellenistic and later Renaissance European influences, rather than Russia's pre-Renaissance European Mongolian origin. So not only does Israel pose a challenge to Russia as an important model for the West, but it also occupies the same space, but with radically different foundations in Russia's grand Eurasian concept. So at the same time, Israel is emerging as the Eastern Mediterranean power, able to challenge the neo-Ottoman designs on Greece and Cyprus, and may play a role in asserting regional minorities, such as Christians and Kurds. But in this, it is a lot, it is, in, in, in this, it is aligned with Russian interests. And that positions Israel in a better light from Moscow. But Russia still views the rise of Jewish, civil, Jewish civilization in Israel, ultimately with anxiety and ambiguity. Israel is certainly part of the Occident, like Russia, but is also part of the Orient, like Russia. 
And as such, while nowhere near as powerful as Russia, it does occupy the same space. And the underlying indices of cultural health suggest Russia is old and tired and therefore not as culturally attractive. And Israel, despite its ancient pedigree, is young and relatively vibrant. For Russia, which seeks to be the premier Eurasian power in its vertical geographic axis, this has to be disconcerting. So not only does Israel compete with Eurasian Russia by straddling both European and Asian culture, but it could also preempt Russia's ability regionally to secure compliant allies in the long run, such as Iran. Obscured by the intense recent hostility of the Islamic Republic against Israel, it is to be noted that in contrast, throughout history, Jews have traditionally had substantial interactions with the Persian Empire, with several episodes rising to the level of immense strategic importance and cooperation to both. It is not to be ruled out that another such moment is approaching. Israel, by the very act of being, let alone being who it is, is damned to being a complicated relationship with Russia, half witting, unwitting ally and half unintended foe. And unlike the West, Russia understands this far better, but also understands the strategic importance of Israel. So now we've covered the three urban civilizations of east of Suez, Byzantium, Persian and Jewish national uh, culture, and their essence and their orientation. So now we can examine two originally nomadic cultures and civilizations, the Ottoman and the Arab. In the western corner of the Near East, Ottoman civilization occupies the Byzantine heartland. It is ultimately derived from the rise of Turkic nomads, and thus as it reasserts its origins, it inherently reasserts the values of what was originally a Mongolian civilization welded onto the inherited urban civilization of Asia Minor, making it an urban nomadic blend. That said, Arab and Ottoman Sunni cultures share some critically similar attributes having emerged from nomadic origins, especially the quest to seek safety, protection, and fairness through a ruler and a government defined around family, community, and sect, rather than attributes of the individual derived from Rome, Greece, and Persia, who were defined around urban civilization and politics. If indeed the main architecture of the region reverts to older urban cultural civilization centers as the currently current dominant force of the region, the Arab Sunnis appear to be slowly reverting to their 2000 year old pattern of subjecting themselves to the dominance of great powers. What is fascinating is that the Arab world is more willingly plunging into this role than being forced into it. This hopeful age of Arab nationalism is dead. Its dream palace lies in ruins. And Salafi attempts at resurrecting the original caliphate, the only genuinely still active attempt to resurrect Arab culture as a civilizational center of power, have stalled. The Arab world cannot hold its own, nor is there an Arab power strong and vibrant enough to become the strong horse around which to organize. Saudi Arabia tried to play that role, but it is increasingly clear it cannot persevere in this. In recent months, the trend is discern discernible. Saudi Arabia's key allies, such as the UAE, are admitting Saudi Arabia is not up to the task. And Riyadh itself is seeking a protective umbrella. 
as it has since the rise of the Nabataeans 2,000 years ago, with the brief exception of the first decades of Islam, the Arab world is as a whole still anchored to the quest for divining the strong horse with which to align in order to secure protection. It is thus dividing into camps as dependent allies of the great regional civilization centers of power, seeking the protection of either the Neo-Ottoman Empire or Russia, or Persia, or even Israel. It is as if the long period of Hassanid and Lachmanid rule, Lachmanid, which is sometimes called Nasrid or Al-Manadira realm, it is as if the long period of Hassanid and Lachmanid era politics of two millennia ago, where there was a great divide between Rome, Byzantium, Abyssinia, and Persia, which pulled apart nomadic Arabs into being proxies and pawns for the great power comp competitions. The Hassanids uh, gravitated toward Byzantium and the Lachmids uh, toward Persia. The power against which many of the Arab nations now seek protection is increasingly the Neo-Ottoman Empire in addition to Iran. As a recent, so they see that as the great competition. <clears throat> Ironically, the remnant Arab nationalist elite whose ancestral families attained elevated status from their roles as local Arab Turkish vassals a century ago are now aligning with the Persian Gulf royal families and descending into an increasingly bitter struggle against the Neo-Ottoman Empire under Erdogan. Unable to turn to Persia for help because they are an even greater nemesis on some level, they turn to whom they must. Israel. Israel thus seems to be enjoying a bit of an unattenuated honeymoon at the moment with some of its Arab neighbors. In this context, Israel remains largely introverted though, but it is accidentally stumbling into the role of protector without even realizing it. Israel remains though oblivious to this vast regional realignment. It understands Arab countries are trying to come to terms with it more, but it doesn't understand the strategic implications of it. Now, I would add a sizable dose of caution uh, into loading too much hope onto Israeli-Arab relations. Although Israel reemerges as one of the great regional civilizations from which Arabs and others, namely other regional minorities such as Christians, Druze, Yazidis, Baha'i Kurds, can seek protection, Israel follows form and remains largely introverted. Indeed, becoming a regional superpower burdened with the responsibility of protection or regional policemen appears to be a role entirely behind, beyond Israelis either to effectively imagine or even more so within, within which to willingly entangle itself, much like their great American ally. Moreover, while still buried in the overgrown underbrush of history, the history of Jewish-Arab relations in terms of ancient civilizations is not too hopeful a precedent if each reverts to form and origin. The great myth of Arab tolerance of Jews, while certainly at times slightly better than Christianity's or Christendom's treatment of Jews, is basically just that. It is a myth. Even during the ostensible golden age of Spain, let alone later, as so much recent scholarship shows, that relationship was never as golden as one would think. Jews during the Hassanid period, the earliest period of Islam two millennia ago, played the role of an ally, buffer, and even agent of Persia against the Hassanid tribes who were aligned with Byzantium. 
although the bulk of the Jewish population was under Roman Byzantine control. Indeed, the Jewish community of the Hejaz, the northwestern part of Saudi Arabia today, anchored to the towns of Haibar and Medina, faced hostility from pro-Roman Hassanid tribes under the descendants of the Nabataean king Arithas, which metamorphosized into the Al-Harith clan of early Islamic fame. That's where the Al-Harith name comes from, who saw the Jews as Persian agents, a perception which may have been harbored by Muhammad's family himself, since it was linked to the Al-Harith, the Arithas king, kingly clan, and may even have played a role in Muhammad's massacre of those communities. And in the Middle East, time one must understand time has collapsed and can run even concurrently. Affairs of 1400 years ago were often seen as current. Counterfactual history exercises of historical crossroads are neither interesting intellectual scholarly parlor games as they are here, or wistful contemplation of roads not taken. In the Middle East, they remain alive, active options, as if we stand today at the same crossroads time notwithstanding. Time is not sequential, nor is the past decisively in the past, as we understand it here in the West. So while the West views the past, present, and future course of the region almost exclusively through the prism of Sunni Muslim Arab culture as driving the region, strategically, Russia is bypassing or writing off the Sunni Arab world and its natural ally, Neo-Ottoman Turkey and seeks to bring the other main civilizational centers under its sway, most likely to invent, eventually encircle the Neo-Ottoman Empire, which Erdogan seeks to erect. Russia may be onto something. While its concepts of Eurasian vertical axes, uh, Moscow certainly appreciates the Sunni Arab world as critically important, being the southern anchor to that axis. However, it also seems to appreciate that the Arab world has ceased largely to be an independent center of power and has largely again become the subject rather than the object of history. Consequently, Moscow appears to envision the Sunni Arab world's management indirectly through alignment with the other regional civilizations of power rather than being directly its protector. Ultimately, Russia is locked inevitably in a conflictual relationship with the Neo-Ottoman Empire under Erdogan and some Sunni Arab Caliphate entity under Salafi ISIS, for example. So in the end, the battle over the Sunni world, Sunni Arab world for Russia is a battle it cannot afford to lose. Thus, Russia will ally with any force that prevents the Sunni world's domination by either a Neo-Ottoman or Salafi Caliph. So that's Russia. We see how Russia views the Middle East. We see the ground forces at work in the Middle East and the rise of civilizations, the five that I mentioned, and the competitions and how they all interact. What about the United States? Well, we don't think in such cultural civilizational terms, even though we in the West are sort of sorting out some of these very ideas ourselves as we teeter between a traditional definition of the West on one hand, anchored to the foundations of an alloy of Rome and Jerusalem, carried through our political origins in the Renaissance and early enlightenment, and carried through as an extension of British institutions. But then we're also engaged in a more revolutionary definition emerging from late enlightenment, the French Revolution, 
uh, which is carrying us into a modern post-Judeo-Christian world of continental European politics. So immersed in such an evaluation of our own civilizational foundations, we naturally retreat into a more introverted foundation. Those advocating a more traditional foundation of American political culture look to insulate America from increasingly intrusive behavior of European elites and the international institutions they leverage to reshape the United States into a more favorable essence for themselves, namely for the Europeans. In reaction, many Americans are more determined to sever ties to European elites and global institutions precisely because they are seen or sensed as agents of political ideas anathema to traditional American thought. Now, indeed, while the prescription offered by Russia is radically different, very dangerous to traditional American thought, the current crop of Russian thinkers and American conservatives do share one deep suspicion uh, together, which is the suspicion of European elites and their increasingly imperial, although flailing, brand of post-religious, state-moored self-righteousness. Moreover, the hopeful assumption of the universality of the classic Renaissance-based liberal ideas has been sorely tried in decades of interventions in the Middle East, all of which ended unhappily. So our whole proclivity is to turn inward and not to go outward and, and, and proselytize. The upshot is that those American thinkers who are most equipped to understand the need for preservation and reinvigoration of the foundations of traditional American thought are also those who most seek to inoculate America through isolation and most allergic to sacrificing on a global scale to make the world safe for European elites who simultaneously seek to undo American conservative thought while relying on American power because they are unwilling and thus ultimately unable to defend their own interests. It was only a matter of time before more conservative American thinkers rebelled and pushed to abdicate the unenvious role of being the protector of Europe's hostile continental elites. At times, that rebellion has led some conservatives into an overly benign view of Russia's critique, and among a select few even of the Middle East's critique of the West, and those of the same European elites who look to Russia. At the same time, the more continental European left, oriented left, sees Russia's critique of their ideas for what they are, a mortal threat. As such, they increasingly, the increasingly polarized nature of American politics is forcing an increasingly polarized view of Russia and is driving some into taking more rigid lines for or against Russia than would have otherwise been warranted given the vast chasm between the aims of American conservatives and Russian thinkers. As the Fertile Crescent slowly reorganizes around the much older but more genuine foundations of ancient culture, it appears to be entering the long road to modernity and solid political units, although that will take many decades to sort out, not the whole Middle East, the Fertile Crescent, in, in, the, in those five centers mostly, in fact, the three urban centers. In contrast, the heart of the Arab world, further south, appears to be descending into increased fractionalization and into vassal like uh, help me, save me, and secure for me justice type politics of the half millennium before the rise of Islam. The strategic implications of all this taken all together are immense. 
But where does this leave the United States, especially given its recent proclivity toward introversion? Clearly, Russia is more adept than we are in discerning and exploiting this, resulting in a substantial challenge to the West. Currently, Russia is immersed in, in thoughts of great historical and civilizational movements, and it is better equipped than we at this stage to read the currents and navigate them advantageously. As such, the challenge Russia poses to the crisis of the Western, quote, liberal state is aimed ultimately as much toward both the continental post-French revolutionary foundations of the new left and the more traditional Renaissance foundations of conservatism. They threaten both. And Russia's emerging imagery of the Middle East, namely the vertical axis, is an extension of the Eurasianist ideology, which adds a dimension that truly threatens the West, since it can hand Russia a tremendous strategic advantage in the long run when it returns to a policy of directly confronting the West, <clears throat> weakened by the erosion of traditional Renaissance and early Enlightenment thinking at the hands of a communitarian intellectual tradition that abandons the twin pillars of the Plato to NATO continuum and Judeo-Christian reflections on the nature and the role of man. While our increasing introversion is advisable or not, it is real and thus must be factored into our shaping our strategic response. Gone are the heady days of the interwar British Foreign Office and post-war US Foreign Service ambassadors or intelligence officers who could credibly aspire to be quasi-imperial governors bringing about liberal thought to prostrate lands. The heavy-handed controlling nature of our foreign policy elite toward genuine allies has to yield, and it has to yield to a more equal mutual defense arrangement where each ally carries their own weight in their areas of power, but it also frees them from the shackles of constant judgmental US foreign policy elites. In other words, we should be seeking structures of alliance where civilizational values are genuinely shared. The willingness to carry one's own weight is matched and with greater autonomy to each ally as our point man in its respective area. In other words, if we're going to be more isolated, we need allies. We need allies to carry water for us. This, of course, means the United States must be far more discerning, sober, and yes, even informed by a better understanding of these grand historical movements and civilizational attributes about which of these re-emerging civilizations in the Middle East are our genuine allies, which are not allied at all, or, but are fellow travelers. Namely, they're not hostile, they just don't, they're not really dependable allies and which are operating across purposes, namely who are our nemeses. And then beyond that, which populations could be turned given their civilizational foundations, which are fence-sitters. In this, the political correctness dominating the left will be our demise. We cannot survive strategically by embracing political correctness. If, if it is, it will be our demise, as would be also on the other side, a facile belief among some on the right, that the bubble of our isolation is a biospheric fortress of safety. Current black-white view of Russia would best be yielded to a more nuanced appreciation of when Russia is operating as our enemy, when it operates as the enemy of our enemy, such as with Erdogan's Turkey, when it outright threatens our allies, such as Israel, 
and when it is competing with us to turn the same populations into allies, such as the Iranians and the Middle East or Middle Eastern Christians. They're competing to make them their allies. We should be the ones who enjoy their alliance instead. Finally, we and our allies clearly no longer think in these historical and civilizational terms. And yet, we must be aware that others do. In the Cold War, we became accustomed to envisioning ourselves as the leader of the free world. But for the current Russian and Middle Eastern elites, we are also the modern manifestation of the civilization of the Enlightenment and of the Renaissance. And as its resultant focus on the inalienable rights of man, which some Russian elites view as having caused Christendom's corruption, returning again to Father Tichon and Shevchuk and so forth. As for some Middle Eastern regimes, especially among the Fertile Crescent who are hostile, but also think in historical and civilizational terms, they see us as a Christian nation and the idea of free will and sovereignty of man is heretical. Erdogan, for example, the Saudi Salafis, for example. Unable to see the depth of our civilization, they see signs of our enlightenment, measured secularism, and free debate as a sign of the erosion of our Christian soul, and thus as an outwardly impressive but inwardly rotten and hollow tree. And still the constant reminder of our success and power, which is unrivaled in history, inevitably is the ultimate threat to their ideologies. We are the enemy by no choice of our own. Of course, those civilizations who seek to defend themselves against those regimes and those populations who seek to free themselves from those ideologies also see this and we are therefore their natural ally. We are their inspiration through no choice of our own. But being forced into such an inescapable role, we must avoid the illusions of utopian, politically correct ideas and the momentary comfort of retreating into fortress America. We are a great power. We must remain so for our way of life, and we must understand the forces that work in the world and choose to align and encourage those forces that can do work in helping the West as a whole, rather than try to control, but also rather than simply retreat. Thank you, and I very much appreciate being given the opportunity to speak to all of you. And again, I thank Rob very much for, for having brought me to the Westminster Institute to give this lecture. Thank you.